0: After the demigod Hercules had accomplished his 11th labour, giving himself a five-finger discount to Zeus's golden apples, he stopped to rest on the banks of the Po River. In those times, however, the area was overridden with thieving giants who plundered the small villages in the surrounding countrysides. Learning of the hero's mini-break in the area, the elders of the villagers approached Hercules and implored him to help rid them of the giants. When they said help, they really meant You know, if he could do it. Ever ready for a bout of fisticuffs, in no time at all our demigod was able to kill all the offending giants and free the region from their reign of terror. The overjoyed inhabitants wanted to reward Hercules by giving him their most precious possessions. However, Hercules decided that what these people needed was a place where they could protect themselves in case new brigands arrived. He couldn't stick around, he had heroing to do. So he founded a fortified city and gave it the name of his mother, El Camina, which later turned into Cremona, meaning mighty. And this is the Renaissance take on why the city is called Cremona. Hello and welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I, Linda Lespe, will attempt to bring to life the story surrounding famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting violin makers of history. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband, Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French School, L'École Nationale de l'UTRI in Mircourt. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales, not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, Determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the history of the violin. In the previous episodes of The Violin Chronicles, we saw Andrea Amati setting up his workshop, The Life of the City, How it was Run and The Movement of Humanism, Its Effects on Education and Finally the Reformation, the influence the church had on people's lives, especially those of the artisan class. André's workshop had been up and running for about 10 years when news came that the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, would be visiting the city in August. It was all anyone could talk about. They were going to erect a triumphal arch, there would be celebrations, feasting, and of course, music. Everyone wanted to catch a glimpse of the ruler. The excitement was palpable. Andrea, his wife, and their son, the little five-year-old Antonio, would have been in the crowd that came out to catch a glimpse of the emperor passing through Cremona. But now Andrea is fulfilling a royal order. The violin is having a coming-of-age moment and starting to be fashionable to the point that the trendsetting French royal court is making orders for Cremonese violins. And so it begins. What violin maker out there is unfamiliar with the phrase, I'm looking for a Cremonese instrument? Join me as we look at the fashionistas who set the ball rolling. Every city wants to look their best if the Holy Roman Emperor passes through. They were still working on containing heretics, and questions still abounded on how the church would approach things such as music. Groups of thinkers or academies were popping up all over Renaissance Italy, and ideas about the nature of music, its purpose and power, were being discussed. So I was... There were sort of like scientific things happening, right? You had Galileo and everything. kind And, and my, my thought process is the music, I felt like they they were like music texts where they say, you know, it's, it kind of moves your soul. It has this physical impact. And I was thinking it's not so strange that they would approach music in the scientific way, but in the same way as like, oh, well, you've got gravity, you've got the stars. And music, we can feel, we can actually physically feel something when we hear music. So we may as well treat it almost like a science. It's They're doing all these sciences, like why not music? And it's overlapped into the religious sphere as well because it had to do with your, your soul and yeah. your inner being sort of thing.
1: I'm John Gagne. I'm a senior lecturer in history at the University of Sydney and I work mostly on European history from the 13th to the 18th centuries. So I suppose the first thing to say about that is that also the ancients had a strong... Uh, mathematical sense of music. You know, Pythagoras's theory was that, you know, you remember that the parable of the reeds, and you cut reeds to a certain length, and they make a certain tone if you blow through the top of the reed. And I think the mathematical, I, I forget the mathematical um, formula, but it's sort of like the length of a, of a string is inversely proportional to the sound that it makes. And so that was established in antiquity, but became increasingly of interest, I mean, people had known about that for um, centuries through the Middle Ages, but, you know, with the advancement of certain um, techniques, interest returns to, uh, let's say, the mathematical qualities of music. There was a huge tradition to draw upon. I mean, one of the examples is something like St. Augustine, who was writing in late antiquity, who wrote a treatise on, on mathematics, but it was all about music. So they were always kind of intertwined. Maybe the best exact case study to think about is the astronomer, Johannes Kepler, who lived around the same time as Galileo, slightly earlier, and was very interested in this Pythagorean theory of music and arithmetic. And that was, he was one of the proponents of the idea of the music of the spheres, which has an interesting core idea, which is that if we think of proportion of distance, it can be the string of an instrument, but it could also be the distance between two planets or three planets or four planets. And so the idea was that we could, if we could imagine reeds and strings having a relationship of mathematical sound to, uh, you know, with, within the mathematical system, then why could we not also imagine the distance between the planets having the same kind of relationship? And that was an elaboration of a pre-existing idea that the spheres, that there were spheres uh, in which all of the planets of the galaxy moved and that they produced therefore a sound which was not let's say a real sound but resonated with your soul so that the music of the universe was a kind of naturally god uh, established harmony in which proportion mathematical proportions from the minuscule to the galactic uh, made sense and resonated with the natural proportions of you know our soul
0: and that's universal harmony
1: yep Yes, and, so, and then, of course, the, then, as you said, it becomes kind of, um, it becomes a, a cultural trope. People begin to play with the idea of the music of the spheres. It becomes a, a poetic uh, inspiration in the 16th and 17th centuries when poets begin to use the idea of the universal harmony, the music of the spheres, to write poetry about, you know, concord in general between humans, between God and man, between... Uh, you know all living beings and so it was a very powerful idea which I think it remains a powerful idea to think that there's something rational and proportional in the universe and that it works on let's say scale of uh, sizes from the the minuscule to the to the most enormous.
0: And so when you see like those renaissance because the the violin is drawn in a very sort of renaissance mathematical type way would they have been sort of uh, inspired by that Idea of is that, was that all like one big
1: thing? Definitely in terms of the mathematics. I think you know there that's part of the you know when you go back to the the 15th century and you look at uh, some of the most successful artists of that period. You know in, just in terms of religious art, um, most of them. I'm thinking here of artists like uh, the 15th century artist Piero della Francesca, or Leonardo da Vinci, or the German artist Albrecht Durer, who was a contemporary. Um, they all leave sketchbooks where you know they've got measurements of man down to the you know we all know the so-called vitruvian man of leonardo which is the man with his arms outstretched his legs wide and using a circle in a square but artists had much more complex methods of showing the proportionality of the human body about you know let's say the size of the the hand to the height of a man or the size you know the span of arms to the height so this is basically a um, workshop method for most Art, working artists was to understand the proportionality of the body which would then could be broadcast into other media so for instance what made a building pleasurable to be inside was the fact that it corresponded to a natural portion of the human body uh, and so you would build buildings and you know um, scales that were scaled up or down from the size of a human you know it's either it's like 15 men high or something like that So I imagine that probably when it comes to the design, the increasing complexity of the design of violins, there's something similar at work there, which is that artists and mathematicians already know how to think proportionally and to work out in sort of grids, the best proportion for whatever they're constructing, whether it be a building or an instrument. And I think that's probably what we see in development over the course of the 16th and 17th century is the kind of mathematical perfection of uh of an instrument according to those rules of proportion yeah
0: um okay cool. thanks. <laughs> thanks for the universal harmony thing um i was wondering about that Andrea Amati is now working in a time of counter-reformation in Cremona. We spoke about this in the last episode, and although church music was predominantly vocal, there was also the organ and a few musicians. When voices were lacking, they would begin to replace a voice with a viola, and the strings would often double or replace a vocal part accompanying the mass. These musicians would also work for the local council, playing music for outdoor processions, where louder wind or brass instruments would be needed to carry the tune. I spoke to Peter Jensen about the 16th century attitude to music and the differing views reformers and churches had to musical expression. And so, yeah, it's interesting that this is the time they were living in and what they would have seen and done was directly a result of this uh, counter-reformation. Uh, and the... Indeed,
2: this was the intellectual and spiritual world in which people were living.
0: And they're working for musicians who yeah, who are yeah, yeah. playing in the church and composers yeah. at the time, they would compose, and they would write. and they're saying, uh, according to the Council of Trent, I have written this composition. Uh, ah,
2: so well, they would they would quote
0: it just to be like yeah. the, because at the same time, around then, there was a little bit of an inquisition going on. So yes. you wanted to be, yes. it was actually quite risky to yes. be an artist or a musician in that world because you could easily be accused of heresy.
2: I'm sure. Now amongst the reformers, uh, Luther was he loved music. He thought that if you're going to be in the ministry you would' need to be a musician as well. or you know you need to love music and he wrote these hymns and so forth and so on. Other people in the of the reformers took slightly different views. A man called Zwingli in Switzerland uh, was I believe a good musician, but he wasn't in favor of music in church. he thought it would be too sensuous to uh, you needed to hear the Word of God uh, and having music in church was a bit like having statues in church. That was visual, the other was oral. But that was not the majority view. The majority view uh, by the great John Calvin, for example, a Frenchman but in Geneva, uh, majority view was that we needed music in church and in particular, they looked at the Bible and they saw that the Book of Psalms was there. So uh, they were particularly interested in the psalms, and uh, in some places... Uh, Sorry,
0: s- can I just say psalms uh, are actually songs? There's actually musical little directions. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes, yeah, so it's yeah. in the
2: Bible. Yeah. Uh, what they did was they, they would in some places have um, the psalms just as they were written in the uh, vernacular language. In the uh, Anglican Book of Common Prayer, for example, the psalms are set... For the day, they change depending on which Sunday it is. There are also some songs sung by the Virgin Mary, for example, uh, called the Magnificat, and other songs in the in the prayer book. And uh, you would either say them or sing them.
0: Well, you can. People get really passionate about music, and in that era, in the Renaissance, You've noticed, when, <laughs> have you
2: noticed Yes. Well, in <laughs> the in
0: the Renaissance, they were kind of they were. They were talking about you had the science and the spheres and yes, yes, yes. and uh, there was this one there was this idea that that music was so powerful and it moves your soul and because people they, everyone knows you're moved by music and I was saying if this thing that can move our souls and our souls, our eternal souls are in danger if we do it wrong yes. And then yes. and you can see why they they were really yes. a little there bit worried about it they're like
2: as well as, And right. today
0: I feel like we we'll go oh music yeah it's good for you and this but there they were like it is so it's such this uh, it's force that can really has yes. a power to to send you to help for
2: good or for bad it could be demonic
0: So I mean that's and that's right. why in church I think Church music was such a thing that was spoken yeah. about and debated about. And can we do indeed, this or indeed. not? Because you're, you're you're killing people if you're doing it wrong, mm-hmm. or you're saving them if you mm-hmm. do it right. Mm-hmm. So, and
2: some would say don't do it at all, but most said yes, let's do oh, it. Oh yeah,
0: to be on the safe side.
2: But let's do it with the sound,
0: swingly. And he actually went around destroying instruments. Did he? Yeah. So uh,
2: yes, well, <laughs> burning I burning things. Uh, he was he was a little bit strong. Uh, He was a good man in many ways, but he had his... Had his um, his moments. Had his moments. (laughs) Uh, It was a tough world.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, it certainly caused controversy.
0: Yeah, well, I was reading different documents and a lot of it was often like a kid you didn't really know what to do with. You'd send them to a monastery or there was one of the amatis was uh, they're living in this house and there's all these kids and the 16-year-old, he's a priest. And I'm like, yeah. what's the – and he's still living at home. And I was like, yeah. that's an interesting dynamic. And then some of them, you read accounts of things, like complaints and things, and and you see their ages, and they're like, they're teenagers. Yes. And they've just been sent to, to these mon- monasteries. They're bored.
2: Yes, bearing in mind that people didn't live as long in any case. Mm-hmm. So 16-year-olds old. Except these guys. Well, some of them did, of course. But one of the things the Reformation did by saying no to monasteries and convents and so forth, it changed the attitude – I believe it changed the attitude to work. An ordinary person's work was just as important as people in the monastery and so forth and so on.
0: Now, the Italian wars that we spoke about in the first episode of The Violin Chronicles were ending and Italy was entering into a period of prosperity and economic boom. Cremona has a population of 36,000 people. There are 40 music and dance teachers and one instrument maker on the books, And this, my friends, was our star, Andrea. Cremona had made its mark as a musical centre of the region. Andrea was receiving important commissions, and in 1566, a new choirmaster was appointed to the cathedral. His name was Marc Antonio This was good news for the Amates, as not only was the new choirmaster a composer, he was also a violinist, and this could only be good for business. What's more, he was talking about creating a group of musicians in the church, a type of orchestra. Amongst his students was a young man called Claudio Monteverdi. We shall get to him soon. Around 1560, the 10-year-old Girolamo, Andrea's second son, after coming back from school, would have helped in the workshop where his father and older brother were busy ever since the exciting news of the royal order for Charles IX, King of France. This order would also have been assigned to any inquiring inquisitors that the Amates were above suspicion of heresy as this order was destined for the very Catholic court of France. John Dilworth is a violin maker, restorer and prolific writer and researcher. He's been a regular contributor to the Strad magazine and published numerous papers about instruments and violin makers, contributing to many specialised books on the subject. He's been a teacher, lecturer and judge in competitions. And now he'll tell us his thoughts on Andrea Amati. John Dilworth tells us about Andrea's working style and the interesting fact of labelling and dating his instruments, something we don't think too much about these days, but was in fact a novel move on his part.
3: In Cremona, right from the get-go, Andrea Amati was always very careful to sign and and date his labels. So we know where we are with those uh it's very significant i think that the, in cremona um he was very conscious he was making for posterity, really you know when you even when you look at paintings and other artifacts from the time it wasn't common to put the date on you you would sign you know i uh, michelangelo made this or whatever you know but you don't often get a date but it's i think it's significant that in Cremona they uh, well Andrea to begin with did and he was getting uh, commissions from well the most notable thing from the court of Charles IX in in France so it was clear he was he was already famous um he so he was getting from you know the most powerful court in Europe at the time he was being asked to make a celebratory set of instruments so he was he was clearly aware of his position and prominence and, um, and his skill. So he, he signed it and dated it, um, and all his successors in Cremona, because he is the fountainhead of all the Cremonese tradition. It's his sons and his grandson, his great grandson, who were right at the heart of everything. And everyone uh, who subsequently worked in Cremona learnt directly or indirectly from them.
0: Girolamo would no doubt wonder about the young king of France, who was the same age as himself, as he helped out with this impressive order for instruments being constructed for a boy king. They had to make 12 large-sized violins, 12 small-sized violins, 6 violas, and 8 bass violins, or cellos. But that wasn't all. They had detailed instructions on how the instruments were to be decorated with the royal coat of arms, symbols of the king, justice, and the house of Valois. These instruments would become known as the Charles IX instruments, and are perhaps the most well-known work of Andrea Amati. The painted instruments of Andrea have been the stuff of legends over the years, and there has been much speculation over the images and who the instruments were really made for. But what we do know for certain is that the artworks on the instruments were by Cremonese artists and that the town had an established school of painting and produced many fine craftsmen in this domain. John Dilworth extrapolates.
3: A big question about the um, Andrea Marti instruments, the, the ones that were made for Charles IX, that have all this decorative painting on the, on the backs. Um, and all sorts of people have tried to point make a case that this was these paintings were made by Leonardo or something, you know, something ridiculous. Um, my feeling is that he did get a local painter to do that. I did quite a lot of research into that, showing pictures of the back and close-ups and everything around museums and galleries, and they said, Oh, this, yes, this fits in perfectly with the the Cremonese school of painting, which I didn't really know was such a thing, but there were every town in Italy seems to have had a, a school of painting, and they bandy around a few names that I'd never heard of before, but you know, are known to experts. So the, there is that that you can I can well imagine that Amati got the thing finished, and then went to a chap next door who happened to have be the, the local artist, you know, and said, "I want Saint Catherine on the back of this violin." Uh, And he paints it in and goes back to Amati's workshop to be varnished over.
0: It is also probable that Catherine de' Medici, the king's mother, also had a hand in obtaining this set of instruments. The Cremonese were immensely proud of the skill of their painters and indeed had a thriving community of artists, so that when Andrea and his sons were making this set of instruments for Charles IX, there would have been little doubt that they would call upon one of the many talented local painters to decorate the instruments. And so, knowing Catherine's taste of all things luxurious, violins were ordered from Cremona. I spoke to Dr. Susan Broomhall about Catherine, who is more or less supposed to be the person responsible for ordering this large set of instruments from the Amartis. The existence of these violins would have played a role in a far larger story of what was going on in the Valois court, and were not simply musical instruments, but statements in part and amongst many other objects describing who these people were and what they wanted others to think of them.
4: My name is Susan Broomhall, and I'm the director of the Gender and Women's History Research Centre at the Australian Catholic University. I'm a historian by training, and I work on women and gender ideologies and assumptions in the early modern period in Europe. So um, Catherine is is a very unusual individual because she spends almost all her life in the spotlight, in the centre of political intrigue in Europe. She spends most of her her life in France, where she is both the Queen of France, and in the French context, to be the Queen is always to be a consort of a king. There's no option to be Queen in your own right, the ruler in your own right. Um, And then she is the mother of three successive kings, who are her sons, which is uh, quite a remarkable innings, I guess, of somebody in the public eye, where she spent most of her life from early teen years right through until she dies, and very much influential at the French court. Because of her name, Catherine de' Medici, most people will um, link her to the Medici family in Italy. Uh, they are, of course, very prominent in Florence, and she is indeed part of that family. But her mother was French, so... Um, Very often people think of her as an Italian, she is part Italian and also partly French. Um, That's quite important because when she went to France, often people would see her as a foreigner. Um, Most of the people who are critical of her and most of the propaganda about her tags her as as a foreigner. Um, But in fact, her, her mother was French. That said, she grew up in Florence and in Rome. And I think she always carried with her the imprint of Italian design, Italian culture, the way that uh, the Italian courts at that time in the early Renaissance were using fashion and art for political purpose. She carried a lot of those ideas with her to France and I think she very often looked back to Italy as a source of inspiration for artistic plans. And do you, sorry, do you think that's... um. <sighs>
0: From her, her upbringing, uh, that she had this love of
4: the arts, and it's yeah, is that about how she was brought up? I think it's very much part of the style of the Italian Renaissance courts at this time that people understood then, in a way that perhaps we don't always connect together now, that cultural, cultural forms were forms of politics that you told messages about your political situation about your context about your identity and certainly propaganda you did that through cultural means that's how you showed prestige so i think it's a normal kind of process for those courts at the time to think of arts as a way to demonstrate power so that that kind of connection is one i think we might have lost as we think about power now we think of it in a kind of parliamentary setting Uh, for for the leaders of that period culture is power Um, And so this kind of artistic display, and I mean artistic in the broader sense of architecture, music, arts, was always a demonstration of power and a way that you told stories about yourself and, of course, the stories that you want to have represented about yourself. And they're often the stories that have lasted. That's how we understand a lot of what we do about the Renaissance is looking to the buildings and the art to try to make sense of these people and and what they were trying to put across politically.
0: Yeah, so like today, would that be like? The prime minister, um, just having, just going somewhere and getting, having a commission of a giant
4: painting. Well, yeah, I mean it's hard to translate into today because we have forms where, let's say, in the Australian environment, or or even actually in the British or the American environment, when when somebody's elected to high power, they move into a house that represents that high power. So that there's often a the kind of residence that you move to. Um, that's very different to the sort of environment of the Renaissance where you build your own personal manor house to demonstrate your power. And so each of the different dynasties that are vying for power in the Renaissance are each building their own magnificent mansion. Perhaps Trump is a better example of that kind of way of thinking, of the cultural politics of, say, Mar-a-Lago, is more akin to the Renaissance style than, say, Say Ten Downing Street, or you know Kirribilli House in Australia, which which it goes with <laughs> well, I the love person. How
0: Trump <laughs> Trump is a Renaissance man.
4: <laughs> yes,
0: extravagance. Never heard of him described like that.
4: Yes well um I think he thinks through the cultural politics of power in that way um he's got an eye for the visuals and and for the kind of cultural forms in which you can convey it and so he and, and and I guess actually he is a very good example of somebody who communicates through cultural media so maybe those media have changed and now we think about social media but his messaging is very visual um it's very it's very simple and that is that is not dissimilar to these Renaissance princes who have emblems that they plaster on every building so you know immediately the minute you see the Medici balls, okay, it's a Medici house, or you see somebody's kind of symbol and you know exactly who it belongs to in a very… It's like the Trump Tower. Exactly. So um, I don't think this is unusual. Buildings. Yeah, I don't think this is unusual to Catherine. It's exactly the model of the time. What is unusual for Catherine is is that most of the elite women are never in a position to have access to the purse strings to to make the story about them. And to some extent, although Catherine is never the person directly in power, she has a lot of influence. She's able to uh, control funding to put forward political messages. They're not exclusively about her. They're very often about her dynasty, about her sons. But nonetheless, she's one of a fairly small number of women who are able to create... um, create political stories um, from that era.
0: In the mid-16th century, Catherine de' Medici and her son, the king, went on a grand tour of France. The purpose of this tour was to strengthen the bond between the French court and the various regions of the kingdom. It would also demonstrate the power and wealth of the monarchy. During the tour, Catherine and Charles visited many cities and towns all over France, including Lyon, Tours, Bordeaux, Toulouse, and Marseille. They were welcomed with great fanfare everywhere they went, with parades, feasts, and other public events organized in their honor. Cities would be decorated with elaborate arches and other adornments symbolizing the monarchy, the streets lined with cheering crowds. In the larger cities, such as Lyon, Catherine and Charles were greeted by the city's mayor and other dignitaries. They were treated to a series of festivities, including jousting tournaments, musical performances, and banquets. The Grand tour was also an opportunity for Catherine and Charles to meet with local officials, nobles, and other influential people, and to hear their concerns and grievances. This helped Catherine to better understand the needs of the various regions of France to govern the kingdom more effectively. It was during this tour that the Royal Court also went to Bayonne, where the Queen Mother would see her daughter, who had married the King of Spain, Philip II.
5: Hi, yeah, I'm Dr Emily Brasher. I'm an honorary research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, in the School of Design. Um, I'm a fashion and costume historian and costume designer, but I also play viola, so I've definitely got an interest in the intersection of performance costume and uh, theatrical costume.
0: The Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, and took her 13-year-old son mm-hmm. on a tour de France basically mm-hmm. to say, look look at us, we're your royal family. And in doing so, she did it in an extravagant way and they were called the Magnificences, I think, what she would do. And the some of the symbols uh, for the royal family that they would use, we can see on the um, this set of instruments that
5: are called the Charles the Ninth instruments that oh. Andrea Amati made. What we do know is that she was like going all out with these court festivals at the time to really impress people and it was also like people are saying, you know, it's to impress everyone with their wealth and divert attention to the fact that there was like this civil war between Catholics and Protestants that, you know, ended up with this really brutal um, saint Bartholomew Day's Massacre in, uh, when was it, 1572, I think. Yeah, another Um, royal wedding. Yeah, 1572, the marriage of Margaret uh, Valois to Henry of Navarre. So what she's also doing, though, is really cementing her son's legitimacy to be the king you know it's like she's she's trotting him around basically and it's like nah this is your king this is what we're going on and um you know using this this spectacle to do it and she goes all out with it as evinced by these incredible um instruments you know these amati instruments and when she finally gets to spain uh, she put on huge spectacles as well um and her daughter had married king philip the second so she's really cementing alliances with the catholic world as well because we've got the english protestants of course at the time you know stirring things up that the dutch are protestants so she's kind of trying to use spectacle to you know establish this legitimacy of catholicism across Europe in this band across Europe that also I think the Habsburgs, they're Catholic as well, and sort of across Italy and Spain and this band. So that's really important, but also French rule as well versus these other Catholic empires. So she's really solidifying that.
0: spoke to Benjamin Hebert, Oxford-based expert, dealer, author.
6: The first instruments that survive are for the French courts. So Catherine de' Medici seems to have ordered them for Charles IX of France. And we were talking uh, privately about the Valois tapestries, which uh, they have amazing tapestries in the Vatican, which celebrate how great Catherine de Medici and Charles the Ninth was, but you know it's a political smokescreen. It's absolute disaster, but they put all their money into showing how wonderful they are, and we see that there's these incredible uh, there's, this, there's this incredible sort of set campaign trail around around uh, France, rather like Trump if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> Doing, have,
0: <laughs> it's like, uh, Trump meets the Tour de France. I
6: think so. I mean, you know, going to different cities, having their rallies, showing how great they are, showing off with these incredible you know, festivals of culture where they, and at every single one, they take something from Ovid's Metamorphosis and they, create, they recreate it on a huge theatrical scale. And this is actually before the ballet, it's before the opera, it's before orchestral music as we think of it. And you've got a band of maybe 12 Amati violins providing the music for things which are so dramatic that in one case at Bayonne they put some of the musicians in an artificial dolphin and sail the artificial dolphin around a, a flooded artificial lake. In order to, uh, in in order to, and you know that just gives you the epic, epic size of of these uh, these happenings, and uh,
0: and, at, and at the same time you've got the the Spanish um, representative trying to talk politics and war, and and you've got Catherine going, look at that scantily clad nymph on a on a shell coming by on a dolphin. <laughs>
6: It's I mean it everything is about distraction. Uh I mean I
0: <laughs> And in the I think it's amazing because in the background you've got the you've got the, the wars yeah. of religion in France on one level and then you've got this other level of these amazing festivities that Catherine's putting on with their court, which are all about harmony and and getting along with each other and justice and how amazing the the
6: royal family are. It's it's absolutely amazing. I mean, at one, at one level, it seems to be the prototype for a Trump campaign rally. And on the other, this is the thing which then leads to, yeah, out of this comes the skills of the dancers, which by the 1580s becomes ballet. Uh, out of this comes the idea of orchestral music. Out of this directly comes the English court mask, which is sort of a reduced, a reduced set of players. Uh, we actually know this dolphin and artificial thing. When the, uh, uh, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester in 1572, wants to impress Queen Elizabeth, there's sort of a will-he-won't-he-marry-her kind of thing. And to sort of res- his penance is to put something on, and it's a, a smaller version. Of what happens at Bayonne, so it's a smaller dolphin.
0: Oh, he whips out the dolphin.
6: He whips out the dolphin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and does that at, at uh, Kenilworth Castle with an artificial lake and all of that, and then we see from that the English court masquerade. So you know, ballet, opera, Monteverdi's Orfeo is exactly one of these again, and you know, everything comes back to this thing and the prototype of the Trump rally.
0: Where that's yeah, weird. but where where's his
6: dolphin? Huh? I think that's that's will prevent him from becoming president again.
0: It was during this tour that the royal court also went to Bayonne, where the queen mother would see her daughter, who had married the king of Spain, Philip II. You have the Charles the IX instruments that are painted, but there's also a uh, one that's decorated for the King, uh, King Philip of Spain.
6: One of the ideas is that these are for Philip II of Spain, in which case the likely time is during the time of, of Elizabeth de Valois. If so, they are probably earlier because the need for them has got more to do with Elizabeth de Valois' marriage than it had, than anything else. Now, the fly in the ointment is that when we look at all the violins which went to France, which have got the, the French paintings on them. Now, we've, we actually happen to know from engravings that the performance position of these of these musicians was really shoulder to shoulder. And at some point, I think someone must have dropped one of them. <laughs> and whoever the luthier was sometime around the 1580s or something like that decided that what they needed to do was take the corners off and sand them down. And if you look at any of the Andrea Martyrs that are painted you see these really worn down sanded down corners uh, not just shortened but rounded off so that they're almost sort of like a chisel edge where they meet the rim. And we see those on the that on the Philip II of Spain ones as well. So that suggests that the same luthier had the same way with these after they were made, and we don't see them on ones which we don't think ever went to to, to, to France. So the other possibility with the Philip II is actually that these may have. In order for the great festivity at Bayonne, which is the, the peace between, it's, it's designed to celebrate the peace between France and Spain. It's actually the only time that poor Elizabeth got to see her mother again. And Philip II threw a hissy fit and refused to go and sent his wife as an emissary because he felt it was a bit of a, you know, he'd been suckered into a peace that he didn't want. But everything there's about harmony. And a lot when you look at a lot of the, uh, the other things that happen at Bayonne, it's, it's about the, the, the union between Mars and Venus, which is the creation of harmony, and you know all of these things through, through mythology. So the idea that the band, the music is made, half of Spanish, half of French representative instruments, would actually, you know, that would be so central to what, to what the festivity of Bayonne is. That I rather suspect that these things were entirely created by the French for a propaganda of harmony.
0: So they're saying oh, we're so we're so close that look we're playing on instruments that that are uh, representing the Spanish court because we're just in a, in such harmony with that country.
6: And actually, one the one instrument, the one Andrea Marti, which for years was unrecognized in the Musée de la Musique in Paris. Uh, is a is a chopped down viola from the Philip the Second set. So whilst all the other ones are sped, sped around the world, the one the one French Andrea is a it's a Spanish one, which which is evidence of nothing and evidence of everything at the same time.
0: Why are we talking about this trip to Bayonne? What does it have to do with the Amati family? Well, things are heating up in France. There is a civil war happening between the Catholics and the Protestants. The instruments the Amates have made to deliver to the French court have messages on them indicating where their loyalties lie. Catherine would have undoubtedly realised the precarious position of being in power. And good relations with the Spanish was a must. They were an immense superpower at the time. Her daughter was the wife of the King of Spain. That was a good start but her son was still dangerously young and factions at court would always be at work trying to take power. Besides the Charles IX instruments, the Amati workshop also produced similar instruments with the Spanish royal insignias. Were these commissions from the Habsburgs or were they used as a political message ordered by someone else completely? There are several ideas surrounding this second set of decorated instruments. Firstly, they were ordered by the Spanish court, perhaps to celebrate the wedding of Elizabeth de Valois, Catherine de Medici's daughter, to King Philip of Spain. The second hypothesis is that they were ordered by the French court to demonstrate the strong relationship between the two countries and the extent of the harmony that existed between them. Look, we're playing on instruments with your coat of arms on them. We have to be friends. These are just two of many ideas surrounding the set of instruments bearing the Spanish heraldic symbols. France is literally in between the Protestant northern countries and the Catholic southern countries of Europe. The French royal family were walking on a tightrope of diplomacy. There were both very powerful Catholics and Protestants at the French court as the violins fiddled away. In the next episode, we will see how Catherine de' Medici handles this situation and the repercussions the tensions in France will have on all of Europe and inevitably reaching Cremona and the Amati family. I would like to thank my lovely guests, Dr. John Gagne, Dr. Peter Jensen, John Dilworth, Dr. Susan Brimhall, Dr. Emily Brayshaw and Benjamin Hebert you can leave a comment and follow the podcast at theviolinchronicles.bodbean.com. I have an Instagram and even an email at at theviolinchronicles at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast or learnt something new, please tell a friend about it. Or you can give it a review or a star somewhere. You're listening to a live recording of Timo Vico of the Australian Chamber Orchestra playing on an Amati Brothers cello. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to catch you next time on the Violin Chronicles.